but the shoulder is by far the, the biggest example, like the hip of when somebody can be loose and tight at the same time. You can be loose jointed, but then if you do your sport and you lift a lot, if the lat, teres major and stuff gets stiff and you lose elevation from a soft tissue point of view, you're gonna probably stretch your joint capsules out to make up the difference. And that's where a lot of people get into instability or uh, labral issues or some micro instability and sliding, which leads to a lot of the problems you guys see. So there's a lot of athletes who are loose, but they still are stiff, so they crank on their joints and that's how you get a lot of stuff. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Shift Show where my number one goal is to bring you the tools, ideas, and the latest science to help you change athletes' lives. My name is Dave Tilly and today we have something very special on the podcast. Uh, I actually work, as many people may know, at Champion Physical Therapy and Performance in Boston and uh, we do a lot of continuing education. We do a lot of uh, taking a lot of doctoral students on their last rotations and strength interns and so uh, we try to oftentimes go over some things, share some ideas and information and in this uh, podcast is actually the audio from a recording, a lecture that I did uh, for the entire staff on kind of an in-service related to assessing hips. So looking at, you know, the way people move for a hip function, hip mobility, um, what different tests can be done to kind of feel like who needs a different type of squat, who needs a different type of exercise program, or what kind of mobility limitations somebody might have and how we would go about fixing those. So I, on the medical side, have done a lot of these assessments, a lot of these hip exams. And so I gave this intern uh, kind of assessment to our strength coaches and some of our other strength conditioning interns and also some of the medical people who sat in. So we wanted to make sure we got a version of this up because a lot of people are interested in this kind of stuff. So what we did here is we included the audio here, but if you're really interested in seeing things and seeing the test being broken down, we wanted to also provide that avenue for people. So uh, this is hosted through our online platform called The Hero Lab and Shift HQ, which is essentially just my monthly membership group. We have a massive amount of gymnastics medical providers and overall strength coaches and just people in the community who are learning from me and learning lectures and also interacting with people online. So if you want to see the video version of this, you guys can jump into access of that. Just go to www.shiftmovementscience.com backslash the hero lab. But if you're interested in just kind of hearing our thoughts and hearing how we go about stuff, you can listen to this podcast and get a lot of value out of it for free. So uh, if you guys enjoy this podcast, do us a massive favor and just rate and review on iTunes. Then also just please share it on social media with whatever things you find interesting. So toss it up on social media, toss it up on Instagram or Twitter, and just you know let me know what you enjoyed, what you thought was good. If you have any questions, you want some clarification, happy to answer those. Just kind of tweet at me or you know post it online and ask and I'll try my best to get back to it. So hope you guys enjoy this wonderful uh, in-service on the hip. Word. Okay, so part two from last week. So all the hip stuff. We're not going to go super in-depth to the first page because most of it's repetitive from the hip stuff. So uh, yeah, I think the, the hip stuff is super helpful for a lot of programming and a lot of like just general ideas. But the hip is definitely more complicated and intricate like with the layers and stuff like that. I think the shoulder is probably a lot more bang for your buck in terms of what you get from the assessment, especially because you guys deal with such a wide variety of people who have different shoulder needs, right? Like if this is just an average fitnessing facility, it wouldn't be that complicated of why you need to break down the shoulders so in depth. But because we have like overhead athletes, we have you know gymnasts, we have baseball players, we have so many different people all the way up to like some adult fitness people who have a very different shoulder than like the kids do. I think it's really important for you guys to understand how to break down some of these things and really like, take a magnifying glass to like what is causing their limited mobility or what is causing some of their issues to start with. Because in our experience on the PT side, we see a lot of people from other um, facilities who come and have like literally a 45 minute warm up to get like through all of the stuff they have to do for their shoulders, their upper back and stuff like that. And so nine times out of 10, when you put someone through an assessment, you can break down and figure out like, okay, if you are limited overhead, 
there's probably like seven things that could be that are limiting you, you could probably pull out two of those things and do the proper soft tissue work or something for them versus having so much to do. But then also, just like the hip, you have to understand what's a modifiable factor versus what isn't, right? Like if someone's really hypermobile, strength is obviously a modifiable factor, but if somebody has like, we'll talk about a hooked acromion and has a type two acromion that's like a little bit more over, overhung, like a, it's like the equivalent of a cam or a pincer in the hip, you can't do anything about that. That's surgical, right? So if that person's like, I'm never having surgery, I'm good, you're gonna just be have to figuring out how to like landmine press that person or find a way to do it. So I think there's a lot more possible things that could go wrong if you don't have a good assessment for the shoulder versus the hips a little more um, kind of open-ended. So yeah, same idea as before um, with the five layers. I treat a lot of the joint assessments and the table assessments like that. So the osseous being the first one, so the humeral head into the scapula. Um, things to think about or ask for in the subjective is uh, obviously like that hooked acromion is like the end of the hypo-mobile spectrum, someone who's like, blocked from an anatomical point of view to the other side, which is someone who has a hill sax lesion, which is when you dislocate and you slide out the front, you hit the back of your humeral head on the anterior glenoid, and you can have an erosion of the glenoid behind, then also have damage to the anterior glenoid. So over time, if someone has a history of subluxations or has a sport that involves a lot of laxity, they might be very uh, loose jointed, and that can be a problematic thing. Um, so that's one, and then obviously you guys are pretty familiar, but retroversion and throwers is a big thing. Um, from the capsule labral point of view, we're gonna break this down and I kinda wanna have a conversation about this, but obviously bitens we can do again. Um, different plane, different like ER at different points of motion is gonna stress the capsule differently. So like ER at zero versus ER at 45 versus ER at 90 are different portions of the joint capsule. And so you can get an appreciation similar to like a log roll test for someone who's very lax in the anterior capsule or the superior capsule. Um, not that it's gonna change your programming too much. Maybe you do more dynamic stability and cuff work, but someone who is super loose in zero and 45 is really loose, right? Same kind of idea is where are we at on joint gliding testing? Can you guys do joint gliding testing, like shoulder capsular assessments if they're not in pain or unstable? Is that okay or no? Because I don't really know. If they're not in pain, I would say yes. I think I've seen people do it. My, yeah, my understanding is we're, we're allowed to assess as long as pain is not present. Okay, cool. So that being said, we should definitely break down more of doing joint glides, a couple joint glides at different positions to look at how loose somebody is, right? Because a joint glide at zero, for example, in 45, and we won't break down the capsular pieces. It gives you an assessment of how loose somebody is or a sulca sign too. But if you put somebody in layback and then you do a joint glide and anterior capsule is taut and they're still really loose, you're like, whoa, this person is super loose jointed, similar to the log roll test. So I think it's, we do that for obviously apprehension and instability, but I think it would be really good if you guys could um, spend some time understanding why different ranges of motion stress different parts of the capsule, and then how a joint glide being different at zero versus 45 is really important as well. And I'll, we'll spend a lot of time breaking that down because that's kind of the meat and the potatoes of this. Um, the other thing I want to spend a lot of time on is the muscular piece of it. So understanding, not just doing an overhead elevation assessment and saying like, oh, someone's limited, but having a really good Rolodex in your mind of, like I said, the seven things that could cause that limited overhead elevation. There's a way to tease out every single thing, lat versus teres versus pec minor versus pec major versus T-spine. You can break out every single one of those and have somebody be like, instead of having to do nine things in their warm-up, they can just do a lat thing or just do a teres thing. So I think that a lot of times in there, we have people who, again, are spending a lot of time or have unfortunately not the best diagnostics and they 
just spend a lot of time doing that um, when they maybe need to. So I want to break down those assessments for you guys to understand that. And then we're not going to spend a lot of time on neural stuff because that's more like cervical TOS. That's totally not for you guys to deal with. Um, but just understanding, you know, an overhead athlete might have more compression and neural symptoms and stuff like that. And then the kinetic chain, the only thing we're really going to talk about is going to be like the cervical thoracic junction and the T-spine, which I think that the T-spine is obviously understood. People understand extension and rotation, but the lower C-spine and particularly into retraction is a very big piece that I think is missed. Um, in order to retract, you have to have lower cervical extension, right? And upper cervical flexion. And a lot of people who don't have that, unfortunately have a lot of limited overhead mobility or have a lot of um, pain and issues like that down the road when they lift. So you see a lot of people like turkey neck sometimes when they go forward. It's typically in the older population, uh, but it can also happen someone into uh, the younger age group. So that's kind of the first beat. Uh, patterns, joints, impairments, just like last week, is being able to break down those bigger patterns into joints. So the only one, I think a couple that are new maybe are the cervical retraction I just said. Um, cervical motion has a lot of lower C-spine involvement so that someone's stiff in their T-spine, chances are they're probably stiff in their lower C-spine as well. Um, shoulder elevation, right, is uh, lower extension, T-spine extension, and then the scap has to upwardly rotate posteriorly tip and externally rotate to get full overhead motion all the way. Um, I only put in uh, glenohumeral extension because we do have a lot of athletes that require that for gymnastics. Um, so that's the opposite of those patterns to get your arm behind your back. Uh, within reason though, you don't want to have someone who's super tipped into anterior tilt during like an extension motion. Um, but people doing push-ups, people doing bench press, people doing dips, stuff like that. And then horizontal abduction, pushing and pulling is variable based on where your arm is in space. So for some, you know, a low lat row, you're not gonna have as much scap motion, but you might have much more if your elbows are up at 90 degrees. So, um, and then the same thing as last week, right? Mobility versus control versus capacity. If you see something that's consistent across all the patterns, that's probably a mobility issue. If you see something that is inconsistent with the patterns where it shows up in one, not the other, that's probably more about uh, control. And if you see someone who, uh, as the sets and reps go up, they just kind of fall apart technically, that's probably a workload or a capacity uh, management issue. So. Uh, any questions on the first page? Because I want to kind of blitz through that to cover the stuff in the actual clinical part. See? Cool. All right. So same thing as last time. I kind of broke down the more important pieces. Then I have the PubMed stuff um, when I upload these. If you guys want to look at the studies, um, we're con conveniently, uh, some of the authors are in the other room. So we have a good uh, exposure to some of those people. Um, so osseous, right? So just the things to think about. Again, asking for a history of bony spurs or cr hooked chromium. Um, someone who might have previously had like a bursal issue or a cuff issue, they might have an overgrown acromion and you might not be able to do as much uh, range of motion stuff. Um, asking for thoracic pathology, like cervical stuff, and then other oh, thrower, right, for total acromotion. Um, the capsule label stuff is probably where we'll spend the first uh, piece of the time here. So bitens from last week, just to, if you guys weren't here. So being able to do elbow hyperextension, touch your thumb, pinky, knees hyperextend, and touch your toes. That uh, study we showed last week was correlated to hip capsular laxity under anesthesia, but it's clearly you know, indicative of the entire body because of their collagen makeup. Um, so the range of motion testing is, is kind of more we're going to go. So we'll go over capsular testing first, and then the motion stuff we'll do as well. So the way the circle concept in the shoulder works, if you look from the side, right, you have, if you look at it from the front ahead of you, if someone's facing this way, right, you have the superior uh, capsule and glenohumeral ligament, you have the middle glenohumeral ligament, and then the inferior capsule under here. The inferior has a couple bands front and back, and then you have it blends into the posterior capsule. So when somebody is limited or has a lot of motion at ER 40, you're, you're mainly testing the superior capsule, right, and some of the anterior capsule. When somebody elevates their arm to 45 and externally rotates, you're stressing more of the middle glenohumeral ligament and then the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. So a little bit of the front, some of the underneath, right? And then think about it like a shirt sleeve, right? The more that I bring my arm up to 90, I take up tension in the shirt sleeve, which is the inferior capsule. 
piece of the uh, inferior glenohumeral ligament, and then when you lean backwards and you lay someone back, you're also stretching the anterior capsule. So motion assessments for you guys can tell you if someone's really hypermobile or not, right? If someone's lax here and here, you're thinking that someone's more loose versus if someone's kind of like normally stiff here and here, but has a lot of layback, maybe they're just in that position, they're more uh, lax that way. Does that make sense? And then same thing for ab or abduction and elevation, right? If someone is very, very hypermobile into end range extension or overhead, sorry, flexion, um, they probably have more of a loose inferior capsule, right? Same thing with layback. If someone has a lot of layback, they're probably loose in the anterior capsule as well. But the shoulder is by far the, the biggest example, like the hip of when somebody can be loose and tight at the same time. You can be loose jointed, but then if you do your sport and you lift a lot, if the lat, teres major and stuff gets stiff and you lose elevation from a soft tissue point of view, you're going to probably stretch your joint capsules out to make up the difference. And that's where a lot of people get into instability or uh, labral issues or some micro instability and in sliding, which leads to a lot of the problems you guys see. So there's a lot of athletes who are loose, but they still are stiff. So they crank on their joints and that's how you get a lot of stuff. So let's cover that one first and then we'll go over some capsular stuff. So Jack, you want to demo? Do you have a side that's... Uh, problematic. I don't want to use that one. Probably no. No. So let's go head this way on your back. So a couple things about passive range of motion that I had in another section, but it's kind of worth noting here. When you do passive range of motion, it's really important that you guys always use the exact same position all the time, right? And so if you notice, if you watch the PTs in there, everybody has a certain like stance or a certain thing they do to make sure their shoulder is always in the right position. So the position we want to do range of motion in, particularly up here, is 20 degrees elevated with slight abduction in the scaption plane, because that's where the glenoid is optimally aligned with the humeral head, right? If you do range of motion with someone's elbow back here, you're pre-tensioning the anterior capsule and it's not gonna be accurate. So you always wanna make sure you're in the same thing. So I personally tell people to grab the bicondylar axis of the humerus here and then the wrist, because that's the most control you can do or you can grab here as well, right? So usually when I do IR, you grab here and when you do ER, you can either go underneath or you can grab right here as well. So at, at zero, when you're here by your side, if you externally rotate someone, right, this is, this is normal. This is normally tight, about 45 degrees. But someone who's really loose jointed, and I'm an example of this, and I'm abducting her just to show, if I was at completely flush to her body and she had that much ER, right, you'd be concerned that someone's anterior capsule is super loose, right? And so if you go up to 45, you start to get more of the middle portion, and now you see like this is where her laxity shows up more, right? And so she does have an overhead background, so that's part of it. But that's quite a bit of motion for someone who has 45 degrees, right? Normally it would probably be like here if someone's normally stiff. So here and here kind of gives you an idea about who's really, really loose jointed. And then of course you come to here. So I always stand because I'm like a whopping five, six. I always stand with my leg propped up like this to elevate her arm up slightly like that. So some of you guys that are taller, you won't need to do that. Some of you are shorter, maybe more, but that's why all the tables are the same height in the PT room. And we leave that middle table down to always have the exact same measurement for everything that we do. So here, and then again, 20 degrees abducted and you would externally rotate someone there that way, right? So that's how you just look at basic motion, but looking at those three things of here versus here versus here is gonna tell you who's really loosey-goosey and who's not. Does that make sense? So with capsular testing, right, we're just trying to see for you guys, you're trying to understand how loose is the joint capsule, right? So when you do capsular testing, right, the one first one you can do is a sulcus sign. So sulcus is an inferior glide. So that's gonna tell you the superior glenohumeral ligament, right? So the way you can do this in sitting, but just holding here, and I'm gonna show your guns off, Jack. So just a slight, just a slight pull down, and you're just kind of looking here to see that, right? If I was you in a strength conditioning position, that wouldn't be the first one I do because it's a little apprehensive sometimes. I would probably go for these ones instead, which is gliding at 45 degrees, right? So here, grabbing 
right off the humerus. So this is her acromion, and I'm right off the humerus here. So when you glide, right, think about the plane of the scapula. The plane of the scapula is like this right now, right? It's at a, 40, at a 45 degree angle with slight tilt. So if I do a mobilization or try to do a joint capsule glide straight to the ceiling, that's pre-tensioning the anterior capsule, it's not accurate, right? Vice versa, if I do a posterior glide, I'm probably hitting the posterior glenoid rim, right? Because it's angled like this right now. So I'm gonna clunk the back of the rim if I do that. So what you have to do is bring someone up to here, because this is how the glenoid is optimally aligned. So you grab right here and just very, very lightly to give a little bit of an anterior glide, right? And this kind of makes sense for Jack because we said like here, she wasn't super loose jointed, but she has some more here. So I'm not shocked that she doesn't have a ton of like laxity this way, just like normal human laxity, right? She's not super hypermobile. So just right off and you just do a little bit of distraction, nice and easy just to get an appreciation. And then posterior is down towards my foot. So posterior glide is this way, anterior glide is up towards the wall over here. So a little distraction. This is kind of looking at the anterior and the middle glenohumeral ligament together. And then if I wanted to do it at 90, I would come to here, grab the bicondylar axis, pull a little bit, and then same thing, just a little bit of an anterior glide, a little bit of a posterior glide. So I think that's really all you guys need to understand is the motion differences at 0, 45, and 90 to suggest laxity, and then a very quick glide, 45, and 90 in the right planes to see if someone's super loose or super stiff. Because it goes for the other side with adult fitness people, right? Like you get someone who's really, really like a tight individual. If you glide them and like it's like concrete, you're going to have a tough time doing mobility work to change something because from a capsular point of view, they're very stiff. You can do soft tissue work, you can do T-spine work, but you, can't, you wouldn't expect a huge change if someone's really, really stiff in their joint capsule right? Because they're just genetically maybe a little tighter than the individual. So you'd have to kind of modify around that, right? Maybe overhead pressing is never going to be in their wheelhouse, something like that. So let's just do that first. We'll do the ER stuff and the capsular assessment, and then we'll do the IR stuff and the horizontal adduction, all that. So zero, 45, 90, and then just capsular assessment, anterior and posterior. What you're saying like overhead, like obviously like this is going to be if they're rotating yeah. the capsule with mm -hmm. just getting there, like if they don't have a specific need for it. Well, Which one of your shoulders? Correct. Anyway. Yeah. This is the but over time, if they had goals that were there. Or like a goal like yeah. They had this was just you have to be really honest with them and saying that we're going to get there maybe in six months and it's not going to be perfect, but we'll have to really, it might be a dumbbell overhead press at an angle versus like a barbell overhead press or a jerk, right? Or something like that. And also like I would landmine press that person and angle press that person as we weren't crazy on T-spine and soft tissue and some like entering stuff. Because you probably can change the capsule a little bit to be relaxed, but the soft tissue T-spine is going to be where you get most of your changes. So if over three months they're really dedicated and they make a good objective change on the table and against the wall or something like that, like, all right, we can start it. But yeah, it's going to be tough. Okay. Yeah. So you're looking at a long road of like slow progressive yeah. change. Because like a whole, like you were saying last time, like, like there, there, it's like a little bit. Probably all of it. Correct. You got it. You got it. Yeah. So it's going to, it's going to be a tough time to change that. But within, I mean, if you look at research, like eight weeks of a consistent stretching and soft tissue program does change motion. You know, uh, and then if you get some loaded eccentrics in there too as well, you're gonna get a lot of that for sure. Yeah, make sure when you guys do it that you're like off, like behind someone completely, like this way. You don't want to be like, it's hard to move that way. You want to be like this way. As a, so as a general rule of thumb, if you're loose here, that's like your first sign. That at zero and forty-five, you're like. Whereas, yeah. like, if they're only loose up here, that's probably like probably acquired. Acquired, and yeah. You'd expect like forty-five-ish degrees yeah. here. Yeah. At the LA Dodger Symposium thing that I watched recently, they talked about with their hitters, they test at 90, mm. or, sorry, at, at zero. zero, Yep. and with pitchers, they test at 90, that makes sense. Yep. because yeah. hitting, you need to be totally. getting your ER. That totally. Was, that was kind of cool. All right, we all pretty cool with that, and again, we can yeah. go back and review it all, but, so let's go to um, 
the IR piece of it and the horizontal adduction. And then I want to show, can I use you real quick? Yeah, let's have you go on your back here. So Liza is a good example because, head, uh, head this way. So when you externally rotate someone as we talked about, right? So like superior piece and then the middle glenohumeral ligament, right? And then as you get to 90 degrees, as I externally rotate her all the way, the inferior capsule is taken up when I do the abduction component. And then the anterior capsule is taken up slack when I do the external rotation component. Can you guys picture that? Like with the shirt sleeve, so, right? So in, I usually do this in everybody to see how loose they are. If you mobilize somebody in 90 degrees of abduction, but neutral rotation, right? So she's in IR here, right? Pretty much if you're relatively, right? This is IR, this would be ER. So she's in a neutral rotation and you do your mobilization to see what the anterior capsule is. Relax. There we go. So she has a lot of motion that way, right? If I, if I thought about if I externally rotated her and then did that joint capsule assessment again, and it was still super loose, I'd be like, yo, this person is loose, right? Like really loose jointed because they've, they've got wrapped up the anterior inferior capsule and still they have a lot of motion. So the only thing that's tough with this is appreciate how this is the same as this. Can you guys see that? So she's still in 90 degrees of external rotation. I'm just straightening her elbow, right? But now as I grab her here and I say, relax, watch the physiological motion, right? So she's at max end range of external rotation and abduction. The joint capsule is wound up completely and she still has a decent amount of physiological glide. This is again, this is like the end, end, end spectrum of someone who's really loose versus Jonah, would you mind stepping in? The comparatively to Jonah, who is probably more on the stiffer side. And again, both have athletic advantages, right, to it. But when we do a neutral glide with Jonah, right, not much happens there. So if I were to wrap him up more and then straighten his elbow, it's like nothing, right? So that's, again, different benefits to different, right? Someone who might be really good at heavy bench presses versus someone who might be good at really good overhead motion, stuff like that. But um, can I borrow you again? Yeah. So that is for just like capsular assessments, understanding who's loose versus tight. When we measure IR and horizontal adduction, we're mainly looking at the posterior soft tissue flexibility because unless they're a thrower and they have glenoid retroversion, the loss in IR is probably gonna be soft tissue related, right? There's GERD is like very much overdiagnosed and it's not really a thing uh, unless you have someone who has a true osseous deformity. But when you do IR assessments, everything from zero to 90 is all the posterior capsule. Like the anterior capsule gets funky because of like superior versus middle glenohumeral ligament versus the bands of inferior. With posterior stuff, everything in IR is very much posterior capsule and very much posterior soft tissue, right? So if you just, you can just do one measurement in IR here, you don't have to do, you know, this versus this versus this because it's all the same tissue that's involved, okay? Now the biggest thing, and I already saw a couple people who are maybe doing this a little bit funky, when you measure IR, you always want to hold here as well, right? But the placement of this hand is very important, right? So the way you want to do it is you want to stabilize the coracoid. So underneath, and I'm holding her coracoid, because that keeps the scap from tilting. Does that make sense? There's a study that shows that between this versus pushing the anterior portion versus no motion at all can be a 20 degree swing in IR measurement range of motion. So think about why though. If I do nothing, I'm getting scap tilting, right? If I hold the anterior portion, I'm doing a posterior mobilization. So I'm taking up slack in the posterior capsule and I'm gonna limit. And Jack's a really good example. So if I do it here, I would say just like this, she probably has about 50 to 60, maybe plus degrees of IR, right? If I hold her and posterior glide her, she has about 30. And if I give her nothing, <laughs> she has 90, right? So it's very important. I think it was Kevin Wilk who did that study. You have to stabilize here and you don't want to pick them up. You want to go straight down into the scap and measure IR this way. 
that's the true way to measure IR, right? If we do total arc motion, I would have somebody with a goni, I would hold the same position, I would get her ER measurement, and then I would hold here. I would do the scap stability, hold this here, and somebody would measure the goni that way, we'd calculate total arc of motion that way. Okay, so that's the first piece of IR, but also limitations in horizontal adduction also show up as limitations in IR because the soft tissue of the posterior soft tissue is involved, right? So teres major, infraspinatus, like over, like they have a throwing or someone who's just really doing a lot of overhead lifting and gets a lot of stiffness in their teres. So we, I tend to look at this combined with horizontal adduction to see if somebody has posterior soft tissue tightness that's modifiable, right? So the way we do this is this hand goes into the scap, right? When I do this, I don't want to push down because that's externally rotating the scap. Right, that's not going to be helpful. I want to do a lateral or uh, medial glide. So I'm pushing lateral to medial straight in this way. So I'll show you guys. So I'm going this like this. I'm not doing this on top of here. Right? So straight in this way and then horizontal adduction. And you're looking at the measurement of this across, which normally should be like 15 or so. So if someone's really stiff in their posterior soft tissue, which Jack is, right, that's where you kind of get it, right? And you're rock climbing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, rock climbers have very significantly stiffness in their, in their tears. It's pretty common. So glide this way, cross-body adduction to see, right, someone who has loosey-goosey posterior capsule and then has a really big limitation in cross-body adduction and IR, that's, that's soft tissue is the problem. Cool? So let's do the IR measurement and then do the horizontal adduction and then we'll be good with passive range of motion and stuff like that. Midline as a reference, I feel like I've heard that before, yeah. or horizontal adduction, yeah. like, you, like if elbow gets to midline, Yep. Yeah, that's like 20, 25, which is quite a bit. Um, I would say the goal for someone to be like completely loose jointed is probably like 25 plus. Normal is probably from like 20 to 15. And someone who's below that is probably really stiff. Okay. Yep. And then again, Mike wrote this study with some other people, but showed that uh, scat pinned horizontal adduction was more effective to restore IR than the sleeper stretch. Sleeper stretch is quite a bit more cuff irritation. So soft tissue to the posterior cuff combined with um, scat blocked cross-body adduction on the table or at a wall, um, restored IR by like 15 to 10 degrees because it's a soft tissue adaptation. That was in throwers, but it stands true for everybody else. Yep, let's do that one. Lit midline, you said, would be pretty lax, though. Yeah, I would say like lax. 20 is probably what I'm going for. So I, I asked you <laughs> to do that, and he was like, for my golfers, I look for like my normal being midline. Yeah. Yeah. Well, specific for golf. you got it. Yeah, they got to get it crazy across. In the same way that I look for 60 degrees of rotation and a gym is for thoracic spine. I feel like I've heard Chris I've heard, talk about using midline. Obviously, he's just one person. But that, I, th I feel yeah. like that's where I got the yeah. concept of midline from. Midline's quite a bit. I mean, but, yeah, I mean, similar ankle mobility, though. Like, I'd want to see someone have five-plus degrees of ankle mobility if they're doing a sport that requires a lot of, like, Olympic lifting. Yeah. So. Yeah. Whereas but I guess four, yeah. Also, like, just from feeling that, like, if you lay back down, if some people... Like I definitely used to more just like press down on scap and probably not worry as much about mm. what's happening here. Yeah. In which case, like I can get you to midline. Yeah. Right? The, no more, the more you drop and, and internally rotate or externally rotate, you're gonna have a lot more position. Because you're taking slack off. You got the it. Yeah. So. Versus if you're here in neutral, that's probably more accurate. So, yeah, that that makes sense. That if people are measuring it slightly differently or like yeah. just not being as cautious about how yep. they measure, that it's like. Oh yeah, you got midline, you're right. Yeah, yeah. And I just go, I mean, again, I just go from what Mike and Lenny did with Kevin and stuff, and so that's kind of the only yeah. standard that I know. So the other one I really want to spend a good chunk of time on is overhead elevation. Um, does anyone have any questions about the other stuff though? Good? Is there a best method to find core cord? 
Uh, mm, no, I would just say the core code is going to be over the collarbone. So if you kind of like come in from the collarbone an inch or so and go down, it's probably your best bet that way because it's part of the scap, right? So it's in the front that way. Yeah. If you're on the shoulder at all, you're nowhere close. Yep. <laughs> Overhead elevation. So there's a couple layers to this and I'll just kind of talk about it and then I'll walk um, someone through it. So the first thing that I do is I try to see what someone's overhead elevation is in IR versus ER, because that alone is gonna tell you is the soft tissue that internally rotates, that's very common, pec, lat, teres major, subscap, is something in there stiff, right? So if someone has a ton of motion in ER, I really don't even break it out. Because uh, when I assess people in there, I say turn your palms back and give me a full elevation, because that puts the lats and teres and stretch and stuff. Someone might just do this, right? So when you externally rotate, which is why you guys may have seen the screen that I made for the gymnasts, is they sit with their palms backwards and they go overhead against the wall because I want to see what their lat and teres and subscap length is like. So that alone is the first step. I just do overhead elevation and IR versus ER to see if somebody has more or less uh, possible soft tissue stimulus. Okay, if you want to, then you, so someone is limited, right? You have to think about, okay, what are all the things that can limit that? One is thoracic spine, so you'd have to clear that first. But, and then the other things that can limit that are teres major, lat, pec minor, pec major. Those are the big ones. Subscap is more gonna limit ER. It's not gonna limit elevation that much. So when you would do teres major, if you're trying to figure that out, if you look at the orientation of it, if you block the scap and elevate somebody and they're very, very limited, that probably rules in teres major because that attaches to the scapular border. So when you put that hand in there, you're limiting upward rotation, right? And you're not allowing the scap to go along for the ride. So if someone has a lot of motion without their scap blocked, but then you like, or has limited motion, but it go, drops off significantly more with scap block, you've ruled in teres major as part of the issue. Also will show up in horizontal adduction. So if someone has limited scap block to elevation and cross body adduction, you're thinking teres major. What's like the typical, like a normal difference between scap blocked and not? Yeah, so I think we just use like your face is like the measure, the scientific measurement, because there's no studies on looking at what would it be lat versus teres major versus elevation. So we usually just assess people and be like, all right, if we can get like clear your chin and your eye, like you have enough motion. But if someone's like here and you like not even past their chin, it's pretty stiff. Okay. Yeah, we should probably get a study on that. Um, <laughs> so the way to do lat, to rule in the lat, is you do um, overhead elevation um, and then you repeat that with their knees hugged to their chest because of the thoracolumbar fascia into their lower back, when you posteriorly tilt, you take up tension in the lats. So this is from the SFMA. But if you elevate someone and they're extended, their lower back is arched, right? But then they have full motion, then you hug their knees to their chest, and then somebody goes overhead and it's really, really stiff. You lose a lot of motion, you've rolled in the lats. Because you haven't changed teres major, you haven't changed the T-spine, you haven't changed anything. You've just changed the thoracolumbar fascia, okay? So that's lats. For pec major, somebody would be limited in horizontal abduction, right, at 40, at zero, or sorry, 90, and then also 120 for the different portions of the pec, right? If someone has really loose anterior capsule, they can cheat that test and do one of these. So it has to be like really good scap retraction when they do that. And then pec minor is you look from the superior part and see how far the coracoids are off the table to see if there's a distance there. Okay, and I'll walk someone through all these now. So elevation, right, so we would just do normal elevation. I would grab here. I'd elevate in full external rotation, which she has plenty of, and then I would IR, she has plenty of. So let's use somebody else, because you have full motion. Yes. Anybody else? Go, buddy. IR elevation versus full ER elevation. Yeah, we're limited a little bit there. 
right? So something is limiting his, his ER this way. So the first one we can do is I can scat block him. So I, same thing, pushing inferior, or sorry, medially into his scat. I repeat the motion. So here, yeah, we're a little limited there. So right, if he looks from the side, I would say I'd, I'd like him to be maybe more, more towards his forehead, but if I'm really aggressive, he's a little limited that way as well. So a little bit of Terry's major. So now both hands up. Hug your, uh, sorry, elevate all the way overhead. Try to go back overhead. Um, hug, you know, come on back. Come on, no, yeah, arms up. And then hug your knees to your chest. And then drop your arms overhead again. Right, pretty good there, right? So lats negative, right? Terry's major is positive. And then if we go arms by your sides, if I look from the top, it's got a, a little bit of coracoid distance, maybe, nothing crazy. So not as much that way. Yeah, yep. And then this way, plenty of motion that way. So it's Terry's major, right? Maybe it's T-spine too. Can rule that in too as a problem, but T-spine. A little bit of T-spine maybe, and then Terry's major. Do you wanna hop up? I've been waiting for this my whole life. <laughs> so overhead, if we go on IR, a little limited, all right? If we ER, definitely limited, okay? So relax, chill. So scat blocked, elevate. I would say that's part of it. <laughs> that's part of it, okay? And then arms overhead, bring your arms all the way overhead that way. Yeah, and then come back up. Hug your knees to your chest. Go ahead. No, I'd say it's consistent, right? That was the same limitation in both. Yeah, I would say both are limited, but they're not, there's not a huge change, one versus the other. And then arms by your sides. Pec minor, right? He's got quite a bit of distance up off the table. So if you look from this side, I can see his core cords are here, right? And the other way you can always tell is if you just give a little bit of a glide on a male, obviously. But when I go like this, how do you feel? So a little stiffness in his pec minor, and then pec major would be a little bit. Starts to get a little, little sticky there. A little numbness. And nice, stuff in the good. Hands, yeah, yeah. Uh, we could do a. I wonder if your nerve. You would never do this, but yeah, that's a neural tension test. So neural tension a little bit. Um, uh, so yeah, pec major and Terry's major are probably the ones I would chase the most. Lat not as much, maybe T spine, um, and then not really um, lats and not really T spine. Maybe we check T spine, but yeah. So yeah, run each other through those if somebody has completely full motion. Unfortunately, it's not a great candidate, but if not, you guys can check those five. And then we'll do T-spine, and we'll be good. Yeah, if somebody's tight like Terry's mm -hmm. is like soft tissue, mm -hmm. cross-body stuff, is that your main yep. go-to? Yep. What, what about pec minor, soft tissue, yeah. minor? Like soft tissue against the, the corner of the rig, and then hands behind the back depression is really good. Just like this way, oh, and kind of down and back. My neck, everything feels amazing Yeah. So pec minor, think about like retract and then like, like trying to put your scaps in your back pocket. And then also um, over it long way over a foam roller. If you put someone long way over a foam roller and have them do open up this way, the scaps tip around the foam roller to be more. Yeah, hot, hot dog, not hamburger. MRE, right, is, is medial rotation extension, right? And then here, so medial rotation extension is the IR plus the extension, and you're limited quite a bit in IR. Right, so you have about 10 degrees of IR. So what happens is when you try to get behind your back, you don't have IR, so you have an anterior tip, and it usually feels pretty crappy on the front of your shoulder. So, yeah, and your crossbody adduction is a little limited too. So I would say Terry's major, kind of like a little bit like infraspinatus soft tissue, crossbody adduction, scat pinned, that kind of stuff, and that would probably help the IR a little bit. All right, last one real quick, just because we're running out of time. So T-spine, um, there's three ways to do T-spine. Uh, the SFMA's way is lumbar locked. Jack, on the button. 
So lumbar locked, hands and knees, sorry. Quadruped. Uh, hips back to heels. Elbow goes between your knees, right? So we're lumbar locking here. One of those hands goes across your chest. Yep, across like this. It's easier. Okay. Yep. And then turn and look at the ceiling this way. Sorry, this way. Yep. So here, right? And then you would come on this side and just kind of give them a little bit of assistance, right? So if, if from the front angle of Nick, it should be 45 degrees, which almost, almost, right? For athletes, I would say 50 something plus, right? Um, so here, and then kind of giving more. If she can go the same as I can pull, the active motion, the passive motion is the same, that's a mobility problem. Versus if, say for example, she got to like here, and then I come in here and I give a little more, and she's like whoop, that's more of like a, a strength or control issue that you have there. So that's one way to do it on both sides. The other way to do it is just a prone press-up test. So lay flat on your stomach, uh, hips internally rotate, just toes towards each other, and then palms by your collarbone and just do a seal stretch press up all the way. And you're looking for co uh, curve uniformity here, which she has decent uniformity, but you can see it's quite flat here, right? There's no curve reversal. It should be quite extended the other way. The opposite would be someone who's really kyphotic here and has a huge hinge point in their lower back. So she's stiff, but not mega stiff, right? The third way to do it is to have someone sit on the corner of the edge. Um, dowel, extremely long dowel, but we're gonna use it anyways. So hands, uh, across your collarbones with the rack. That on. So go over the bar and hold it. Yep. So here, and then she would sit, take a ball and squeeze her knees together, but I'll just use my hand. So sit so your feet are off the ground. Yep. And then bring your knees together. And yes, this would be a ball, but squeeze my fist and then turn as far as you can to the left. So by adducting and squeezing, we lock out the lumbar piece and the hips and then turn the other way. And you're looking to see if the stick can get past the parallel of the table, which it is. So she has good motion turning. Her extension's a little limited that way. What's your marker if they start leaning back too far? Marker if they start leaning back too far? Like, oh, yeah. Far is too far. No, they should be straight up, right? Okay. Yeah. Just tell them do it, because we've always used the ball thing. Uh, the Dodgers Symposium, they just tell people to cross their legs and then squeeze oh, them yeah. together here. Oh, yeah. That works. And it's awesome, because so you don't have to, like... Yeah, I, I'm totally never using the ball ever again. <laughs> exactly, same thing. Um, so, yeah, so you can do those three, and then the thing about... T-spine motion is extension is coupled with rotation because of the way the facets are aligned. So somebody can be limited in the T-spine here, right? But then you can break out the rotation and the extension. And I would say the extension is more her limiting factor, but rotation is fine. So that's why probably she shows up as extended and rotation limited on the T-spine one together. I think that overhead athletes probably want to go the 50 plus range. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any athlete, yeah, just generally, you know, unless they have a sport like powerlifting or something like that that doesn't like need a ton. But uh, yeah, generally they should be more. 45, I think, is like bare minimum for anybody. The same way as like four, four inches of ankle dorsiflexion is pretty good for a non-athlete. But if they're athletic, they should probably have f five degrees or five inches, sorry. I remember in a grassy course thing, I took him showing like a soccer player that they had his whatever, the time and how stiff he was compared to like a pitcher that had like in the lumbar lock rotation, like over 90 degrees yeah. rotation. Yeah. Um, and it's disgusting, yeah. Yeah. Between a rotational it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Again, and part of this is acquired too. We were talking about that before. Some of these things are natural. Some of these things are acquired through their sport. So someone who's a pitcher or a rotational athlete, a hockey player might have way more thoracic motion that's acquired versus someone who's just like born stiff, you know? Um, all right. Just those last three and then we're good to go. Yeah. So you have quite a bit of like lumbar hinging. So I don't think you're limited in T-spine motion, but we would just be aware of the fact that a lot of it comes from lumbar. You just have a lot of lumbar motion versus T-spine. I do too in the same way, but you're just hypermobile, so. We would just be overly. 
Yeah, we would just be concerned about like overextended lifts, like back squatting you. I'd probably front squat you or goblet squat you versus back squat you. Yeah, she's got a little more of an anterior pelvic tilt, but a lot of athletes do. And if someone does have, like on Liza, someone does have a really big like hinge point in the lower back, it's not the end of the world. You're just more cautious about extension-based like hinging and squatting. So I might front squat or goblet squat that person for the first start versus lumbar or back squat them, you know? Because if they back squat them, it's going to accentuate the anterior tilt. If you goblet squat or front, it's going to tuck them under. Yes. That's why all the gym is in here, front squat and goblet squat. So then how much of that are you... How much of that are you trying to play into, um, like, if someone has, like, flat back posture, mm -hmm. and so they aren't really anterior or posterior to yeah. the pelvis? Yeah. So, like, how does that play into whether or not you want a front squat or back squat? Um, yeah, if they're very... Anatomical. Yeah, if they're very extended, I would bias a front squat and a goblet squat. If they're very flat-backed or rounded, like kyphotic, I'd probably try to... If they have the mobility to do that, I'd probably want to do a back squat eventually, but I'd honestly probably dumbbell front squat them. Yeah. Yeah, because it's more on top of their chest versus in front of them. You don't want to feed that position more. Yeah. But honestly, if somebody has any history of back stuff, I usually single leg them for most of their loads. I like front, I like squat or hinge them just to get a training effect, but then like step up, split squat, reverse lunge, single leg RDL is like what we're hammering. Like all of the people who have come back from stress fractures or disc issues, I pretty much always go with split pelvis, single leg for the first entire six weeks of their program. Because that's more leg intensive and back friendly. Less force, yeah. And then like loaded carry, sleds, accessory work like that. So you're you're moving away from like doing like bilateral squats? Yeah. We're, we're doing it to test the motion, like a, a, a hip bridge or a hip lift or something like that we would do. And I would front squat them or goblet, or goblet squat them, but it wouldn't be my main loading effect. Like it wouldn't be my 1As. You know what I mean? It'd be like my 3As with lighter load. And I would put the split squat, split squat and a step up on opposite days and a single leg RDL and something else, like a step down on the early days. Correct, because somebody can load up a, a step up pretty heavy and not feel terrible. Yeah. Same with a split squat. It's usually that their back handles that a lot more comfortably. Yeah, expect more rotation on one side than the other. If the sport, yeah, if there's like a thrower, hockey player who pits to one side for sure, yeah. But sports like gymnastics and bilateral sports, I don't want to see a huge asymmetry. But they, I mean, they twist to one side, but. Would the, the thrower, would they tend to be more rotated towards the side? Correct, correct, yeah, yep. You got it, yep. All right, cool. So that's probably good for now. Um, I'll put these up on the dryer for you guys, and then I'll put the papers up too, but we just got to get going for clients. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it and got a lot of value out of it. I just want to let you know before we sign off here that a couple things we'd love for you to do. So one is please just make sure that you rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you're listening, because that really does help the episode grow quite a bit. And then second, if you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you left us a review as well and told us what you liked about it. You know, what information was useful, what things were not useful, would you like to know more about, what guests do you want to have on in the future? And then also as you kind of go about your day, if you found something really useful, just toss it up on social media. We love to hear from people on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, all the different websites that they're using for social media. Facebook is great too. But yeah, let us know what you like because honestly, the podcast comes from people who just tell us what they're finding useful and that's how we create the next set of content. So yeah, tag us in the podcast or tag us online, whatever you're doing it and uh, let us know what you think. Thanks.